0: Go to CloudOptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's CloudOptimizer.com.
2: Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at chabacasino.com.
0: The only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily.
2: Welcome
3: to Friday's Football Social Daily, your daily Premier League podcast. If you've not done so already, click subscribe. You'll get a new show every day, boxing off everything that's going on in the English Top Flights today. I'm Jim Salverson, by the way. I've got Joel Tudor and Noel McCorn on the podcast this morning. How are we doing, gentlemen? Very good. Good to speak to you both. You're good in the sun in Manchester this morning. Very rare thing. In, it's like Haley's Comet coming around every 23 years or whatever it is. There is sunshine in Manchester. That's the big news because there isn't much going on in the world of Premier League football right now, but there is still plenty to talk about, including Wales, who are closing in on their World Cup dream at the moment. They are one game away. Way and Gareth Bale was once again the talisman, but his country form is once again leading to criticism from his club's fans. We'll talk about whether that criticism is justifiable in any way and Wales's potential appearance at the Qatar World Cup. We're also going to be talking about the news from Stamford Bridge that one potential buyer has been ruled out of the race to take over the running of the club there. There are still five on the table, but we'll ponder the future of Chelsea Football Club shortly. And a Premier League legend has hung up his boots JD, Jermaine Defoe has decided his time with football has come to an end. We're going to remember some of the players he's played with and the clubs he's played for at the end of today's podcast. But let's start off with a little World Cup roundup. It's creeping up. November, December, the World Cup comes around and we'll talk more about England's potential in the tournament on tomorrow's podcast, on the dugout with Trevor Stephen and Francis Bernardi. They talk about England's chances and the friendlies this weekend. That's on tomorrow's podcast. But for today, let's focus on Wales, who beat Australia 2-1 in the playoff semi-final, meaning they're one game, one win, away from qualification that game potentially is against either ukraine or scotland depending on who wins that wales versus scotland sounds a little bit tasty but either way i mean it's difficult to say who you'd rather have at the world cup finals nile between wales and scotland it's always good to see home nations there but i do like wales there's something about them something about their character that means i'd like to see them at that world cup final would you agree with that
1: Yeah, I mean, Wales, what a performance last night. I mean, mainly down to one man, Gareth Bale, and I'm sure we'll talk about him in a bit more detail shortly. But I do like Wales as well, and it's been a long time since they were at a World Cup. I think I saw a statistic last night that it's been 58 years or something like that since, or might even be longer. I think 1958 might have been the last World Cup that they went to. So it's been a hell of a long time. Um, since they were on on the world stage. Obviously, a a few years ago, I think Euro 2016, they were absolutely outstanding. They got to the latter stages of the knockouts. They went further than England in the tournament. Gareth Bale was a a huge part of that. And, you know, in the last few years, they've produced some really good players, I think. You know, the likes of, of Aaron Ramsey and Gareth Bale are two top players that would get in most top Premier League teams, if not teams around Europe. And we've seen that with Ramsey playing for... Arsenal and Juventus and Gareth Bale playing for Tottenham and and Real Madrid. So you're talking about uh, two excellent players of which are a number of other uh, solid players that we see in the Premier League. Um, on a regular basis um, off the back of Ryan Giggs, who was kind of the flag bearer for, for Wales for so many years. Uh, for them to have continued to produce a couple of top quality players, I think it's testament to them. I think they're only a nation of around 4 million people. If, if that, I think it might even be fewer than that. So for them to do what they've been doing is is absolutely outstanding. So yeah, I think credit to Wales. I think they showed exactly what they're capable of against Austria last night. Gareth Bale's free kick was just absolutely ridiculous. Um the way he got it up and down, and it was just one of those where, you know, you couldn't have had the ball drop any closer to the crossbar um, before it went in. So it's just a, a brilliant strike, a great free kick. And yeah, Scotland, their potential opponents, we don't know when that game with Ukraine will be. We think it might be Scotland versus Ukraine in June, obviously due to the current invasion of Ukraine by Russia, that game has been suspended until further notice. But um, if it is Scotland who get past Ukraine, Wales versus Scotland, yeah, okay, it's a it's a tasty clash, as you say, but I think it's good for British football that at least one of the teams will be in the World Cup. And it's been a while since Scotland have been there as well. You know, I mean, it, it took them long enough to qualify for the last Euros, let alone <laughs> for a World Cup. So um, yeah, I, I think I'd prefer to see Wales because I, I think that it's been so long and it would be great to see Gareth Bale play in a World Cup. I think that, you know, World Cups are made for the best players. And he's certainly one of those or has been over the last seven or eight seasons, to say the least. And with the absence of a, a side like Italy, when they were knocked out by North Macedonia, um, why not a, a chance for Wales to go through and, and show what they're capable of? So still work to be done. But yeah, it'd be nice to see them go, I think.
3: We'll come on to Italy shortly. You mentioned there, Niall, the team that did so well in France 2016, getting to the quarters. I think Wales did in that tournament. But this isn't the same squad for Wales that got that deep in the tournament. They have still got Gareth Bale, but they've got a few ageing legs and they haven't got quite the same quality compared to Scotland, who have probably got the better team and they've gone on this amazing unbeaten run. So when it does come to that, down to that final, who would your money be on? Would it be on the Welsh? I mean, it looks like the game will be played in Wales as well, which is always handy, either Cardiff Stadium or the Millennium Stadium. Would you back them to get through? I think I would,
1: especially considering... I mean, I used to live in Cardiff. That's where I went to uni. So I know exactly what it's like when the fans get behind their team. Um, I paused a little bit because, you know, Wales haven't been to a tournament for so long and they wouldn't have felt uh, the pressure uh, like it. You know, it, it would be a unique pressure to them and to a lot of their players. Uh, you know, to carry the weight of your country is, is, is something different Um than playing for your club because these sorts of opportunities in terms of international tournaments don't come around as often, you know, as for instance, a Premier League game, you make a mistake or you miss a a penalty in a cup final. There's always the next season, the next game will roll around. It doesn't work like that with international football. So that's why I kind of hesitated, but I think, I think they could do it. I mean, if the games play, I mean, all of their home games are played at Cardiff Mm. City Stadium, um, which generates a decent atmosphere when Wales play at home. But if this was a, a big enough match, which I think it probably could be, then the Millennium Stadium, um, that place when the rugby's on is absolutely fantastic. So there's no reason as to why if they can get enough interest for that game, which I'm sure there would be with the chance to qualify for a first World Cup in decades on the line, that they, they couldn't pack out the Millennium or at least get it up to 50,000, 60,000 uh, and show what they're capable of doing and you know have the full support of the country and the nation behind them. So... Yeah, I think they can do it. I think they can do it. It won't be easy, mind you, because, you know, these games never are. But, yeah, I think they can. Um, And, and, you know, good luck to them.
3: As you mentioned, the hero of last night was Gareth Bale. He won't be looking forward to heading back to Madrid, however. He missed El Clasico about a week ago with an injury and then a few days later was pictured training with Wales, seemingly having a whale of a time, and the press over in Spain, had a field day with that. It does seem to be a familiar story that he's injured for Madrid. I think he's played two hours of football this season, then fit for Wales. Now, he does get a lot of negativity. He does get a lot of criticism from Madrid, from the press and the fans there. But is that kind of management of the situation from his point of view, the fact that he misses a major game for Madrid and then is running around on a training pitch for Wales hours later... Could he handle that situation better? Could he manage that and maybe not get the criticism that he does get?
4: Yeah, I think in the reporting mark of the Spanish newspaper, I think they called him a parasite prior to this game. Um I think he came yeah. out after the Wales <laughs> game when he said, I think he, he was dying to say something in regards to that, as if to say like, come on now, like, you know, I'm still that player, but he's uh, still under contract at Madrid.
3: But It's disgusting know. coverage. I mean, you've oh, got to is. remember players are human beings and you see the coverage... The criticism that the coverage of Harry Maguire's form gets at the moment in the UK, I mean, that is, that's is—that's a drop in the ocean compared to what oh, yeah. Gareth Bale receives in
4: Spain at the moment. It's pretty much like a character assassination. They've been doing it for years now to Gareth Bale. And it's quite sad to see because considering everything he's given to that club, um, he's won four champions league titles with them and he's put, had a, a major hand in all four of them he's got a handful of La Liga's handful of Copa del Reyes, and he's had a handful in every single one of them um I just feel as though the Spanish press have got such an agenda on him I think purely because like you say he, he quite clearly prioritizes Wales over Madrid and I think that's just pri- um, mainly due to the disrespects he receives considering how much he's given that club because even the fans don't really appreciate him and obviously he's He's had his major issues with injuries um, pretty much throughout his career, really. But even still, it's just the simple fact that he's just not getting the credit where it's due. I think the Spanish fans and the Spanish press look at it as you're earning, what, €600,000 a week to play for this club. And you don't have any desire, you don't have any kind of commitment to actually play and go again going go according to your contract and he's seen it as well he's got like what i think four months left and he leaves in the summer um it's, it is quite a sad state of affair but i mean like like he always mentions wales golf madrid is i think it's been like that for a while now and um when you're at a big club like real madrid where you've got their fans who even booed the likes of cristiano ronaldo I don't know what the exact agenda is with the Spanish press. I don't know if it's because, you know, he's a bit of an outsider. He doesn't speak Spanish. It's because he doesn't Um, play enough games, Joel. So basically
1: when mm -hmm. Ronaldo was kind of coming to the end of his time at Madrid, they were hoping that Gareth Bale would be the one to step into his shoes. The thing is with Cristiano is he's very rarely injured, which is kind of testament to him and his longevity. Whereas Gareth Bale can often spend a lot of time. I mean, he tends to miss around a third of a season and what he does do when he contributes is exceptional but I think the frustration is that he just isn't fit enough regularly enough and then when he does come back to fitness he almost demands to be put straight into the team and then the managers that he's had respectively have been like well no hang on a sec you know we, we can't just put you straight in the team and then he doesn't understand that himself he gets frustrated himself so I think it's a combination of factors what I don't understand Joel is they had the opportunity to sell him a couple of years ago and then Isco got injured quite seriously and so they kept him and and now it's almost I know it's not Real Madrid who are pushing this narrative it, it's the it's the Spanish press but I think you need to take that in into account surely
3: considering his destination was going to be China I think the fact that he stayed in Real Madrid and I, I guess he hasn't played that many games again still so it's difficult to make the argument but you, you could see that being a good thing for his career the fact he was forced to stay at Real mm. Madrid and I, I guess the question is now what happens here And I guess I'll put this to you, Joel. And we've talked about this loads of times. He proved last night, I think, for Wales with the goals he scored and the form he showed that he has got something to offer at the top level still. Yeah, I mean, even at Tottenham,
4: when he had that short load spell, I think he scored 11 Premier League goals in 20 (laughs) And considering everyone made out prior to him going back to the Premier League that he was absolutely finished, his legs are gone. I mean, that's not a bad return. And then for Wales, on every single big occasion that I've pretty much seen him on the big stage, he always, always turns up for his country. So it's the same, to be fair, though, I don't think it's bail that's been singled out because even when you look at the treatment that Eden Hazard receives from the Spanish press, it's absolutely horrible where, you know, they make regards about his weight and the fact that he's always injured and he's played literally what, 10 games in two years uh, and he's contributed next to nothing for the hundred million that he's paid. They have no patience for anyone there, regardless of what they've done for the club. Um, and it is, it is quite sad because he, he should have a very good legacy at Madrid, but it's just the pure fact that the very they go on the present and the right now. And if you're not playing games and if you're not contributing, and clearly his commitment is nowhere near what it should be for Madrid than it is for Wales and they're going to hound him completely and I'm sure one thing I'm dying to see is when he's no longer a contracted Real Madrid player I bet that interview he's going to do is going to be absolutely magnificent (laughs) but right now his lips are very much sealed on that he can't really say much but I can tell he's dying to really launch into every single person that's doubted him over there but a few
3: months. We'll wait a few months for that one. Very good point. Let's talk briefly about Italy, because I think that's the big news from this round of World Cup qualifiers, is that Italy won't be there. They lost one 0 to North Macedonia last night, which no one saw coming. That's ended their hopes of qualification. What's happened, Nile? Because it was only months ago. They're in the well, they won the European Championships. They beat England in the final and Roberto Mancini was being heralded as the saviour of Italian football, the man who changed their defensive style and turned them into an attacking force. And now here they are, crashing out of the World Cup to, with all due respect to North Macedonia, a minnow. I'll tell you what's happened. I'm
1: actually flying to Italy this weekend, and now I've inconveniently had to remove my North Macedonia jersey from my suitcase. But, you know, that's that's another another story. Um, I don't know what's happened to Italy. I think it's just... A nice little synopsis of this game that we love. It's remarkable, isn't it? Italy, who can be unbeaten in such a long time, um, which included a string of results through the Euros. They went all the way to the final and they edged out England on penalties. That unbeaten run that Mancini took them on was absolutely sensational. Um, Something that we haven't really seen much the like of in international football. But yet when it's come to this, a game against North Macedonia... In which they comfortably should have been victorious. They're beaten one nil, thanks to a, a last-minute goal. And credit to North Macedonia. I mean, the celebrations that that sparked when that goal went in were brilliant to see. And it's a a huge moment for them as as a relatively new country, I suppose, in UEFA. Um, I, I think it's brilliant. So. Excellent for them. Um, devastating for Italy. And that's the last two World Cups they've missed now. They didn't go mm. to Russia 2018. They won't be going to Qatar in December of this year. And uh, Marley's posted a tweet on the sports social Twitter account, um, which I don't know if he's serious or whether this is true, but it's a photo of uh, Matarazzi being headbutted by Zidane in that famous World Cup final in 2006. And um, Marley's... I think suggesting that that could be the last knockout World Cup game that yeah. Italy played in. That is insane. They not get out of the groups in Brazil, did they? Or did they get out of the groups in Brazil? I have no idea, no, did, but that is absolutely insane to think that that game, which is famous for, you know, Matarazzi being headbutted by the legendary Zidane, him being sent off in his last ever game, and Italy going on to win the World Cup on penalties in 2006. I just think that's insane that that's Italy's last ever knockout world cup match do you
3: think that's it for mancini i mean he's gone from hero to villain within the space of 24 hours pretty much yeah but do you think his time has passed
1: yeah i think so i think so and and it's sad to see because it's a while now until the next uh international tournament obviously it'll be uh 2023 i think and you know the qualification has already begun for that I'm not sure how Italy are doing in, in qualification, but, you know, the World Cup's still in December, so we, we, we've we got March here, and so therefore, you know, there's at least a few months left of the year, well, more than that, you know, eight or nine months left of the year for whoever comes in and replaces Mancini to, to take on the mantle and, and try and build something for the next tournament, which, of course, Italy will be defending champions for because it will be the next Euros. So, yeah, I mean, maybe. I, I think what's interesting, if if Mancini does lose his job, could we see him back in the Premier League? Obviously Manchester United are looking for a manager and I've seen a few people quite keen to have him turn up at Old Trafford, but will he do that with his Manchester City connections, of course, famously winning the title um with that Aguero moment yeah, in twenty twelve. No, I don't think he will beggars can't be choosers at the moment, Joel. Sorry to sorry to inform you that but
4: um <laughs> yeah he's yeah. inflicted too much pain on our fan base for that to Yeah, he he has,
1: and I don't think he personally would, but I mean if he does become available, Jim, um, and there are a Premier League sides looking for a manager, then who's to
3: say we couldn't see him back in England at one point? be an interesting option for some teams. I've just checked what happened in the 2014 World Cup in Brazil because I, I was actually out there for, in Brazil for the tournaments and I'd had far too much Pacifico at the time to remember what actually happened. But you might remember <laughs> Italy were in England's group and it was Italy and England who finished the bottom two places, third and fourth, and both were ejected from the competition whilst Costa Rica topped the group with Uruguay yes, in, in Uruguay. second place, which yeah. is unbelievable. Joel Campbell had the tournament in yeah, his Yeah, correct. <laughs> um, are you disappointed that Italy won't be there, Joel? Because I, I love a World Cup. And one of the things I love about a World Cup is the biggest teams in the world are there. Italy, Germany, Brazil, Argentina, Spain. They're all fighting it out. And when you miss a major team like in Italy, and potentially Portugal as well might be missing from this tournament, it just doesn't quite feel the same. Uh, In some regards, because you
4: weren't, you know, the weird thing is that when you look at their World Cup qualifying group, they didn't lose a game. They'd scored 13, they conceded two goals. The only thing that pipped them to the post was the fact that Switzerland drew one less game than them. And they lost zero games as well. So it's not as if they were unlucky. But in some regards, they were because I know Jorginho missed two vital penalties in a couple of those games. And if he would have scored either of them, and he's typically pretty good from the spot, um, they would have gone through based on one of those goals. And he even came out and said it's probably the biggest regret I'll always look back on in my career of missing those two penalties. So, you know, their, their group was straightforward for a European Championship winning side. That group should have been pretty much done and dusted. And to only win four out of eight is actually a massive failure if you look at it from that perspective. Um, But, you know, it's like the same with Holland. They missed a couple of tournaments and it was needed because it's almost like a transitional period of getting rid of the old guard and bringing in the new talent in the next tournament. But even still, I mean, Italy's side, if they would have qualified, they would have been easily one of the favourites. I think everyone... Totally bypassed Macedonia and thought, you know, it's going to be between Portugal and uh, Italy. Italy are probably going to be the favourites even still, um, but when it comes down to a one-game knockout tie, anything's possible. And with North uh, North Macedonia being able to be victorious and that is just a miracle in itself and that's like the beauty of football i guess and i've always kind of thought and maybe it's a question to you two you know in the way in which the champions league winning side gets a bypass into the next champions league campaign do you feel as though because a european championship winning side do they deserve to be in the world cup automatically purely based on the fact that they've won that tournament as in you know to make sure that the (laughs) champions are in the world cup kind of thing
3: I think potentially they deserve a bye to the next European Championship because you want the defending team there. I don't even know. Does that happen? That might happen already. I'm not entirely sure.
1: I mean, I'm not sure because with the Champions League, it's season after season, isn't it? And it's every four years for the World Cup or Euros. So it's kind of, I feel like... But then every two years for each tournament. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I don't know. I just I think if it was back-to-back seasons, then it would be understandable. But I, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, the thing is... For me, it's a completely it's...
3: different group of players, isn't it? When by the time it comes around again, yeah, exactly. Yeah, for... if it was five years, it's too too old of a
1: team. Then it's basically yeah. a different team, isn't it? For me, it's the actual qualification for the World Cup. I want to see uh, American Samoa going up against Italy. I want to see Portugal travelling to the you know Sao Tom and Principe. I want to see I want to see these sorts of games, you know. Um, but obviously for the way the world is at the moment, and we're trying to um, tidy up our carbon emissions, I'm not sure. You know, playing Australia away in a World Cup qualifier is going to go down too well with with too Mm. many people. So I can understand why it's kept within UEFA. But what you've got to understand is for a country like North Macedonia to qualify potentially for the World Cup is insane considering the quality of the sides we've got in Europe. You know, England, Spain, Portugal, France, Italy, Germany. You know, so for North Macedonia to possibly qualify from the UEFA teams is, is insane. It's brilliant. Whereas if North Macedonia were logistically placed in Asia, they'd qualify every season, uh, every year for the World Cup. Um, And that's, you know, why we always see Australia in the World Cup because, mm. you know, they're part of of that region um of which the teams they're playing against, really, uh, they have a massive advantage because they're a much bigger country than all of the other sides around them, whereas it's the opposite for North Macedonia. So in an ideal world, I'd love to see... You know, all 200 teams or 190 teams in FIFA get drawn against each other, and whoever you play is whoever you play. Understand logistically that's not possible, and it's probably not good for the environment.
3: But that would be, for me, an ideal world of how we'd sort the qualification. We're going to turn our attentions back to the Premier League next and the ongoing discussions around the future of Chelsea Football Club. One of the runners who were in the mix to take over has now been discounted, and we'll talk about it next on Football Social Daily.
0: Go to your happy place for a happy price.
2: Go to your happy price, price Priceline. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky?
0: Football's Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk.
3: Welcome back to Football Social Daily, turning our attentions to the Premier League and to London and to Chelsea, who still have huge question marks over their very existence as a future club. Very existence as a future club, <laughs> very existence <laughs> as a, the future of the club is in quite, anyway, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Chelsea are looking for a new buyer and we don't know who that buyer is going to be yet, but we do know who it's not going to be. And it won't be the Saudi media group who have been ruled out of the running to buy Chelsea. They've been informed by the people who are looking after the sale of the club. They will not be making the next stage. The offer on the table was 2 billion pounds to buy the club 200 million pounds in addition which would go straight into the running costs to keep the club going so one of the wealthier bids from the six or so that are on the table but I guess Niall this isn't just about finding an owner with deep pockets who can keep Chelsea in the manner it's been run so far there are other considerations as to who takes over the club from here
1: yeah, I think that's the key here. I think that it's not about who can take on the mantle you know, off of Roman Abramovich and continue to facilitate Chelsea's um, attempted dominance of the English game by winning European Cups and by winning Premier League titles. I think it's important that whoever the next owner of Chelsea is, is someone who isn't going to end up um, down a similar pathway to what Roman Abramovich did. And I think that the Saudi Arabians, we've already heard question marks over them when it comes to their takeover of Newcastle United. And, you know, the Newcastle fans, Marley included, is already sick of the questions that come with the fact that the ownership of his football club uh, come from a, a specific regime in which there are um, concerns over how they operate and how they act. Obviously, it's not always up to football fans to, to, to be the kind of the moral bastions of of what their owners get up to and you can't expect a football fan to all of a sudden turn their back on a club they've supported for their entire life because what's effectively outside of their control, a change in ownership, has taken place. And You can't expect fans to do that. I wouldn't do that personally if it was me. So I can't expect any other fans to do that. So that's not what I'm getting at. I just think that in terms of whoever replaces Roman Abramovich as the owner of Chelsea, it needs to be someone who is maybe more... um, on on a, on a sound moral footing, for want of a better expression. Um, and I think that the Premier League have already been down that road when it comes to dealing with the Saudi Arabians and the Newcastle takeover. And there's still a little bit of bad blood there regarding that. So for them to possibly entertain another Saudi entity in the Saudi media group... Um, uh, was, was always going to be unlikely, in my opinion. And that's been the case. They've been ruled out of the running. But that's not to say those involved in the Saudi media group, Jim, won't cobble together with uh, another group and form a consortium. It feels like it is going to be a consortium which takes hold of Chelsea rather than an individual. Because as we know, with Roman Abramovich owning 100% of Chelsea, that's caused no end of problems um, with the way things have been done in, t- in terms of trying to figure this out. And the future of Chelsea Football Club. So, yes, I do think that the sale of the club won't be a 100% stake to a single person. I think it's more likely to be a group or a consortium of investors which takes Chelsea on, and maybe that will make things slightly easier. I think, for now, Chelsea fans just need to accept that they need someone who's going to stabilise the club, and they can't be expecting to compete at the top end of the Premier League table for the next two, three, four years, and competing in the Champions League and winning it. I I just don't think that's realistic. I think, for now, it's about settling Chelsea down. If they do manage to do that, I'll happily eat my words and say congratulations and well done to them. But I just don't envisage that being the case.
3: Niall rightly points out there, Joel, that part of the consideration behind rejecting this bid is the fact that it would take a long time to get through the Premier League. We saw that with Newcastle and the, the amount of time that it took them to ratify that deal, it would be the same kind of scenario with the Saudi media group. The other consideration, I guess, is that the Saudi media group is, has connections to the regime in control of Saudi Arabia. They say the money in the group is privately funded, but there are connections there. Does that feel morally questionable, potentially, to have a team in the Premier League run by the Saudi media group that does have connections with the regime and Newcastle United, which also has connections with the Saudi regime? It feels like for the integrity of the competition, that would be a bad move. Yeah, I mean, how far do you keep
4: auditing these kind of groups that are looking to buy Premier League clubs? Because we know the history around, you know, Newcastle's owners It's very publicly available to anyone. Um, I don't know if there's some kind of conflict if you have two kind of um, buyers from the same kind of, you know, region or links to the same thing that you're you're talking about. But it's strange with football now because obviously we've seen in the past how owners have absolutely... You know, stripped away a football club purely based on the fact that anyone was just allowed to buy the club, as we've seen. You know, with Mike Ashley and how he just kind of took down that side and really stripped it down to its bare bones and. And you look at so many different owners in the past, even when you look at the Glazers, who've leveraged a hell of a lot of debt onto the club. I'm sure that wasn't audited at all when they were um, about to buy the club. So uh, it's, it's very important in football now. I think Gary Neville's been a massive advocate of having like an independent regulator who decides whether they're fit for purpose to actually buy a football club. And to to a certain extent, I think it is something that could be necessary Um, Just for the protection of clubs in the future, because you see, like like we've seen with Roman Abramovich, I don't think anyone would have saw this kind of situation arising, um, considering you know just how close to his heart that football club is, and how you know it was very adamantly clear it was never going to be for sale, and then suddenly this situation comes around. I don't know if an audit would have been able to predict this kind of thing happening, but um i mean in terms of making sure that you know there's no moral ties which are going to go against what football is trying to come away from then i think it is important but yeah in terms of chelsea's uh takeover potential with all these different consortiums and individuals i think the main thing is just the fact that for chelsea fans they just want to know that it's going to be an owner who's going to be as invested as dedicated and as committed to the club as abramovich was because that's what they've been used to ever since the takeover in two thousand and three. And I think it's a massive worry if, you know, for example, the owners of the the Chicago Bears um come over and they kind of treat it as a franchise type thing in the way in which the Glazers have and it it never ends up working out well. And they've been so used to this kind of investment. So I think I'm sure that is a worry for them because Abramovich was very, very, uh, very, very generous with the the pounds when it came to Chelsea. But not every owner is going to be like that. So
3: it is is difficult and it's difficult to know how far you audit these people. I think objective one is making sure there's a football club for them to sport in the future, to be honest with you. But I do take your point. Niall, I'm going to potentially throw you under the bus with this question because I'll be honest with you, if you asked it to me, I wouldn't be able to answer it in any depth (laughs) at all. But out of the five bids that are on the table at the moment for Chelsea, is there one that is potentially the more favourable option?
1: Oh, I don't know.
3: I mean, that is a hard question.
1: (laughs) I mean, obviously the one with Nick Candy seems to be the one that's most popular with the fans. Um, There are other bids that are certainly not drawing much of a of an attraction with supporters i think the danger with nick candy is he's no experience in running a football club so then to come in and run a club the size of chelsea is gonna be a challenge i mean he is a chelsea fan and he's you know said the right things that the fans want to hear he said that um you know the the club needs to be in safe hands and i'd rather it be with me because i'm a chelsea supporter but that's that's not to say that the club will be successful under his stewardship because you know he's he's got the money but does he does he have a clue what he's doing? It's the
3: people you bring in around you though, isn't it? If you're in that position, if you're in a nick-candy position, you don't try and do everything yourself when you get into the boardroom, you bring in people who know how to run a football club.
1: Exactly, and that's the key. I mean, if you look at uh, for instance Newcastle United have just brought in Dan Ashworth, who's the technical director at Brighton, and they've just they basically poached him. I just think I just think you're right, Jim. I think it's more about Who is going to put Chelsea on the best level footing? And yes, we don't want to see Chelsea um, go down a similar route to what happened with Newcastle when it was bought by Mike Ashley and it just stagnated. But I mean, it's better to have that than a club that goes out of business. I think that's very important to, to mention. So the government have hired an American company to run the rule over all of these potential bidders for Chelsea. And they'll be the ones, this American business, They've been the kind of they're the intermediary who will decide who owns Chelsea, which I think is concerning in itself because I think there's a conflict of interest there it's it's not an independent business by any stretch of the imagination, particularly when you throw geopolitics into the mix. but also would I trust the UK government to make the right decision when it comes to who owns Chelsea? No, I wouldn't either. So I think this is a really tricky situation and one that needs to be treated with trepidation. I'm interested to see where it goes. Chelsea basically need to be sold quickly and I think that's partly why you talk about the Saudi media group not being involved and it taking a long time to get through the Premier League. The, uh, the timing of this is is essential, speed is of the essence as they say because I think that Chelsea need to make sure that they have some sort of new ownership in place before the end of
3: the season because if they don't who knows where they could be next term. Speaking of footballing futures, we'll talk about the future of Jermaine Defoe, which likely will not be within football. JD has retired and will celebrate part of his career next on Football Social Daily.
0: Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football's social daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk.
3: Welcome back. Final bit of today's podcast is all about the Premier League hero that is Jermaine Defoe. He's retired from professional football after 22 years and 227 career goals he posted a heartfelt message on social media yesterday thanking a load of people including his mum who bought him his first ever pair of football boots it was really touching he seems like a really nice bloke actually Jermaine Defoe during his time he's played for nine elite clubs well eight and Tottenham Hotspur so he's had a very successful career in the Premier League and I remember him at West Ham Nile he was much loved there we poached him from the Charlton Youth Academy and that was kind of the beginning of his career you must remember him at Portsmouth as well although I think he only spent a season at Portsmouth didn't he yeah do you remember him fondly for his time at the club no (laughs) okay but I should do
1: (laughs) but I don't and I'll tell you why Jermaine Defoe was brilliant for Portsmouth he was it was outstanding for us. Him and Peter Crouch had a brilliant partnership when we were in the Premier League. You know, the old school big man, little man. Um, him and Crouch were both uh, England regulars. I think Crouch was one of the leading England goal scorers. Jermaine Defoe came mm. and played for Portsmouth because he, he had a, an affiliation with Harry Redknapp. Redknapp, I think, pulled him out of the Charlton Academy and took him to West Ham. He then played under him at Spurs. Uh, Harry Redknapp had left Portsmouth to go to Tottenham Hotspur and Jermaine Defoe wanted to go with him. And he threw the towel in. He right. down tools and... That never sat well with me, and there was a moment where... What do you mean by that? As in, you didn't feel he was putting the effort in? He just didn't look okay. interested. He, he was putting the effort in. He was banging goals in for us, but then all of a sudden he wanted to go back to Spurs and basically decided he wasn't going to be a professional.
3: He had a very poor agent Did Jermaine Defoe. I think that the kind of his exit from... You can't blame the agent. His exit from West Ham was under a cloud well. As well. you need to
1: have more integrity than that. Whether your agent's telling you to do this and do that, you need to have more integrity. And yes, everyone knew he was going to Spurs, but why not just put a shift in at Portsmouth and score and score? as many goals as you can and then you can go and Mm. actually the club gets a better fee for you I don't want to accuse a player because this is dangerous for me to do so I don't want to accuse a player of deliberately doing something because there's no evidence to suggest this but there was a moment where Jermaine Defoe had a penalty for Portsmouth some people some supporters claimed that he deliberately missed that chance and I'm not saying I'm in that camp but I can certainly see where they're coming from put it that way there were moments at the end of his Portsmouth career where he did just look like he wasn't interested. It was a case for me of what a shame because Jermaine Defoe is one of the best goalscorers we've seen in the Premier League over the last 20 years. Nobody can dispute that he was a very good player. And it's sad that I'm sat here talking about Jermaine Defoe thinking about the way his Portsmouth career ended. But, you know, these are the sorts of things that football fans remember. And for all the good goals he scored for us and for all the performances he put in that season, he will be remembered for the way he left Portsmouth and not for the contributions he made. And I think that that is why I haven't got fond memories of him. And he's an excellent player. Did so well at Sunderland to keep them in the Premier League when he did. Such a good goal scorer for Tottenham. Uh, went to Bournemouth and went to Rangers and, and continued to score goals there. So I think that as a player, there's no doubting that he is a, a top player in the history of the Premier League. Is he a top player at Portsmouth in my memory? Sadly, no.
3: Niall won't be going to his retirement party, Joel. How about you? I mean, he was linked with a move to Manchester United a fair few times. And I was always surprised that he never made that step up to a top, top club because he had all the attributes. He had pace, he had finishing. He was maybe a little bit diminutive, but we've seen plenty of smaller strikers be very successful in the Premier League. A player you would have liked to see at United and a player you were surprised never made that real step up?
4: Uh. I mean, he was good, but during the time where he was at his peak, I don't think he ever would have got into the Manchester United side considering the, the strikers we had during that time where you know you had Berbatov coming in, Tevez coming in, and then you had Rooney playing at striker, uh, Van Persie. I don't think there would ever have been an opportunity, but I mean, during his heyday, he was absolutely classed. I think I distinctly remember him, especially for Portsmouth and for Spurs. Um, but I mean, to get to the age of 39 and still be... Playing at a decently good level is is I think it's a privilege in football, isn't it? Considering the fact that a mm. lot of pretty good players end up fading away or have faded away around the thirty three, thirty four mark, and you can't like. I mean, obviously, I would take Wayne Rooney's career over Jermaine Defoe's every single day of the week, but the fact that you know Rooney had to retire at I think thirty four, and you got Defoe continuing at thirty nine. That's not to say that like, the professionalism was different or that they worked harder or anything. But it's just like, he, that, he, I think you're blessed to be able to p- play to such an uh, old age. Um, so, yeah, he's, he was always good in his heyday, I'm sure. Uh, Owen, our Spurs colleague, has nice fond memories of him playing up top <laughs> with... Uh, was it with
3: Crowd- Do you play with Crouch at Spurs as well? Yeah. Not to give too much away of, for something that's
4: going to happen in a minute. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I love how they've just been like following each other around for their careers, like little and large, like a little Chuckle Brothers duo act. But uh, yeah, he was a quality player, and he probably should have made a a bigger step up from Tottenham. He probably had that next move in his uh, in his career, but he's had a great career, and he can look back and think. I mean, he lasted a good twenty. 20-odd years, which is a privilege, like I say. As I
3: said, he played for eight clubs in all, not including loan moves. Uh, We're going to talk about some of those clubs now and some of the strike partners he's had through the years. I've got a game for you. I'm going to talk about some of his strike partners, tell you the clubs that those strike partners played for, not including loan moves. This is just senior career, and you have to identify Jermaine Defoe's strike partner from the clubs they played at, okay? Cool. Okay. Right, we'll do it in chronological order as well. The first one, you might get this fairly quickly. Tottenham. Queen's Park Rangers. Portsmouth. Aston Villa. Southampton. Wait, what?
2: Liverpool. Crouchy. Yeah, <laughs>
3: Peter Crouch. Oh I, thought,
2: oh, I
4: thought, oh, I thought we were talking about the different ones he's had in all the clubs. That's why I was thinking. Why is he listing all the clubs right
3: now? <laughs> no, so we've right, so we got the game now. noah has got the first point, but we've, well, we we understand well, the okay, game. Okay. Right, so Peter Crouch was one okay. of his... Famous strike partners. Next up. CSKA Sofia. Bayern Leverkusen. Tottenham. Pavlochenko Manchester United. Berbatov. Fulham Dimitar Berbatov. Very good now. You should have got that one, Joel. Come on. Yeah. The, the, the CSKA threw me off. Right. Next one. Greenwich Borough. Crystal Palace. Arsenal, West Ham United, Celtic, Burnley. My word. Legendary player for Arsenal. I have no recollection of him playing for Burnley in any way whatsoever. No, no, no the, the Arsenal. Just one season at West Ham, banged in nine goals and 22 appearances. Current pundit on match of the day. It's not Ian Wright, is it? He played for Palace. It is Ian Wright. Is it? Yeah. Well hey done, Ian, yeah. Ian Wright. Very good. 3-0 to that? Niall. You're, you're out of the running um, now, Joel. You're just He's playing played. for pride and nothing He's else. Berry. Preston North End. Portsmouth. Leicester City. David Nugent. Very good. <laughs> no, you're good
1: at this game, Nile.
3: <laughs> 4-0 to Niall. This could be a whitewash. <laughs>
1: right.
3: Very final one. This is Joe, a tricky you'll need one. to send an apology letter to your fans,
4: giving them a
1: refund. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Come on, David Nugent. He was like your hero back in the day.
3: Chelsea. Palmer, Liverpool. Sunderland. Milan. Barini. Very good. Fabio Barini. 5-0 Nile. Well He's played, flying. my friend. <laughs> Joel, you need to go and take a long, hard look at yourself. Joel,
1: that is embarrassing, son. (laughs) (laughs) These. Um, not my not bad got for Birbit someone who doesn't him, really else. like Jermaine Defoe, is it? <laughs>
3: <laughs> very good. Uh, that is it for today's Football Social Daily. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget the dugout will be out later today. It is Trevor Stephen, myself and Francis Benali talking about what's going on this weekend in football. No Premier League games, but we're taking a good look at England, the friendlies they've got and ahead to the World Cup as well. Make sure you've clicked subscribe to this podcast so you get a new show every time it's ready. Nice one, Joel. Nice one, Niall. And we'll see you next time. Time for another Football Social
0: Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode.